Creating your own reality. Is it possible for me? I am Jennifer Cahill, the Consciousness Architect, and I am here to tell you that it's not only possible, it's closer than you might think. Welcome to the show. Hello, friends, and welcome to Regarding Consciousness. I am Jennifer Cahill, and it is a pleasure and an honor to get to have these conversations regarding consciousness with thought leaders from around the world. And today we are joined by a new friend who I recently met in Croatia a couple of weeks ago, Chandler Stevens. Chandler is the founder of the Ecosomatics Institute, which provides advanced training for practitioners interested in connecting the dots between body, mind, and environment. He also leads a coaching group called Movement as Metaphor, which uses movement to dissolve self-limiting patterns in thought and action. In his spare time, he is pursuing a doctorate in clinical psychology with an emphasis on how we can leverage embodied cognition and altered states of perception to drive change into stuck systems. And I'm also very excited to talk to him today about his new endeavor, The Joy Machine. Thank you so much for being here with us, Chandler. It's a real pleasure. Thanks, Jennifer. Yeah, it's so funny. This is something you would know, but I was on a call right before this. I do a call every day at the same time with a dear friend. And if nobody's ever done this, I highly recommend it. So you are getting me, Chandler, for the first time ever, just off the back end of probably the biggest breakthrough I've ever had in my life. I didn't know until about 25 minutes ago that I was afraid of people. (laughs) And all of a sudden, it's like a wild one. So we're starting this episode in just complete candor. And I'm like, huh, I wonder what it's like to actually do a podcast and not be afraid of people. Like, what could possibly come out of it? So we get to play in this awesome new space of consciousness and transformation. And on that note, I'd love to hear how you came to go on this journey of consciousness and transformation. What brought you here, Chandler? I, first, it seems like such an honor to, to meet you in that kind of space. What an amazing time. What got me started with this? I think, as is the case for many folks, my journey in this general space started with pain, suffering, figuring out how to make being a human a little less difficult. In my case, it was a combination of a fairly dark psychological time with an injury from jujitsu that led to this just long-standing chronic pain. It was difficult for me to walk for a period of time. And so I was around 20 years old then. And I felt like I was 75. I mean, my body was just like not a fun place to be. And in attempting to resolve that, I went through all of the usual suspects and physical practice. And eventually I stumbled my way into somatic education, embodiment practice, and more broadly, the mind-body system together. And I realized that a good amount of what was leading to the difficulties I was experiencing really found its roots in emotional difficulties too. And that was, that flipped my world a little bit to think that my body wasn't just this machine, wasn't just a hunk of meat, but actually this is where soul met the world. And I have a sort of insatiable curiosity that led to the clinical psych world and all these things. But at this point, it really is, it's a pleasure for me to begin to explore these interrelationships between soul, between soma, psyche, and how that is that, that we can begin to take part more deliberately in the world around us. I think it's a pretty good summary. <laughs> it's a great place to start. And I think that it's fascinating. We've had a lot of episodes on consciousness, ranging from thought leaders, authors, scientists, 
Though I can't say we've done an episode as it relates to somatic movement and how movement can actually help us heal. I remember for me personally, many years ago, there was a website. I'm the CEO of a company called Om-Heals and Om.app. But there was another one called, I think it's called Daily Om. And they used to offer free classes. I don't know if they still do. And they had this cool class that was like chakra dancing and moving. And I remember as you move different parts of the body, say the sacral area or the solar plexus, I remember almost feeling vomitous at one point because of the stuck energy and emotions as you were just going through this. It was only a 10, 15 minute process. It wasn't like it was a day or intense. So share with us a little bit about that for maybe some of our listeners and viewers who might not be familiar with somatic release and how the somatic and movement side of things really can have a direct correlation to what's happening physically and psychologically in our bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I imagine most people are familiar with the general experience that when we're stressed or when we find ourselves in a conflict situation with somebody, whether it's a lover, a business partner, a friend, some guy who cuts us off in traffic, whatever the case is, our bodies have a kind of automatic response. And there's some times where that's in the nature of what we might think of as the skeletal muscles, the ones we can move voluntarily. And that's our shoulders creep up toward our ears. Our breathing gets restricted. We just get tension in the jaw or around the eyes. And then there are other times where that stress manifests in what's called the smooth musculature of the body. And that might lead to more intense symptoms like intestinal distress, migraine, headaches, blurred vision, these sorts of things. And what's often the case is that our bodies are attempting to regulate these two competing demands. Mm -hmm. One is this desire for authenticity, for individuation. It's to be what we are. And the other is for connection, for closeness, an attempt to maintain a relationship. And so often these stresses manifest in this conflict between these two desires as basically a restriction in our ability to take action in the world. We might compromise our individual authenticity in order to preserve what seems like a vital attachment relationship. So if I'm in a conflict with a lover, let's say, I really want to maintain that relationship. And so I might just bite my tongue. I might grin and bear it. All of these little colloquial metaphors that we have in the culture, they often relate to a very concrete bodily experience as well. I had no idea. You think of the term grin and bear it, and it never dawned on me that, wow, that's actually a literal thing that we grin and bear it. And I know emotionally, too, from a gut standpoint, our gut is related to so much and that if we're unable to digest an idea or something, it can often relate to physiology. I remember, I think it's Louise Hay, you can heal your life, signs and symptoms. Every time I have an ailment or I have a loved one who has an ailment, I always go to her list and see, oh, what could be the limiting belief? In fact, that's how I got to what came up right before this episode with my dear friend. We were on a call and she was, we were talking about this idea of perfectionism. And you know, it's funny. I'm going to, I'm going to be just really raw here with you, Chandler, if it's okay. Can I be super raw? (laughs) I'd love it. Yeah. So we were just at this thing called baby bathwater together. And part of it is it's like you're networking and you're meeting with all these people. And some people right there were doing like tons of business right there on site. Like one guy, I remember a super sweet guy became friends with these. Oh, yeah, I had 40x the ROI I got there. Other people are getting investments. 
And it's like the person who didn't get asked at the dance. Now, I say this, I developed wonderful relationships, but we were in the middle of a fundraise. And I realized that there was some sort of blockage, like something was blocking me from really connecting at people more than just that, more than that just facade level, that superficial level, let's call it. And my dear friend, mm-hmm. God bless her, KJ, was just calling me out on this. She's, Jen, you're always so worried about being perfect and just like, getting it right, that people don't get to see the real you. And then in that moment is when I had that epiphany of, wow, I wonder if I have a belief that I'm afraid of people. And then sure enough, I muscle tested it. Do you ever do muscle testing, Chandler, kinesthesiology? Every once in a while. Yeah. It's something new I've been doing. So I did that. And I say this because what I do is I'll muscle test to see if I have a limiting belief. Every time if I notice that, oh, am I having a hard time digesting an idea? I was taught by this thought leader of how to muscle test properly. And it's pretty amazing how our whole body weakens when something is not true for us. And so anyways, I'd just be curious to know your thoughts. Like how do our limiting beliefs or our inability to digest things that we might not even be aware of at a conscious level, how do we begin to shift and transform that using the work that you do? Oh, what a complex question. I am not known for asking simple questions. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, yeah. Let me take a stab at it. One of the primary motives that we have, consciously, unconsciously, but as this living system, is this real need for coherence. And that could be a coherence with our, call it our epistemological stance, what we know and believe about the world, with our ontological position, like how we are, what we're being at that point. And if we find ourselves in a state of incoherence where we're acting out of alignment with who we see ourselves to be, let's say. So if I have an idea that I'm an honest person and I tell a lie, I'm incoherent in that way. And there's a very real way where my body's going to respond to that and I'm going to compromise my foundation. And what I mean by that is we've got this ever-present need to organize ourselves with respect to gravity in the floor or the ground, let's say. And when we are in a state of incoherence, we experience, it's a pretty distinct sense of shame, we might say. And we'll actually collapse into ourselves when we're in a state of shame. And it might not be as dramatic as I demonstrate there, but we'll collapse a bit and our body's going to create this tension to basically catch us, to attempt to, to bolster, to reinforce us. And in that moment, we're actually weaker. We are separated from the biological resources available to us because we've either collapsed in on ourselves where we've created this net of tension, a kind of compensation against that collapse. And so our musculature literally isn't available for then the activity we might want to take in the world. And so when I'm looking to help someone dissolve that kind of pattern, divest from that that habitual response, I'm going to pay particular attention to how they experience the support of the ground beneath them in that moment. So if they find themselves in a state of incoherence, if they find that there's some block in their perception, something that they're not able to do despite their best intentions, it could be as simple as asking, what do you notice about where your body makes connection with the ground right now? And what's the nature of that connection? Is that a connection where you are buoyed up from the support of the ground? Is that a connection where you're almost resisting that contact and trying to hoist yourselves up, puff up your chest, that sort of thing? 
Or are you spilling into that connection, just hoping to God something's going to catch you there? And for a lot of people, even just having that basic awareness of the ground at that point, it's it's revelatory in a way. Their, their posture changes in that moment. The sense of the availability of the world around them can change at that point. And it's such a simple thing, but I, to me, there's almost a mystical quality to it to think that in any moment we have a secure enough relationship. In any moment we have a, a, an unfaltering support available to us in that connection to the ground. So how can we connect to the ground? You read all of these things. A big thing has been, I forget what it's called, earth walking or where you mm. walk barefoot. As somebody who lives in Lisbon, I will say it's a shame. Lisbon's a beautiful city, but unfortunately, more than anywhere else I've ever lived, there's broken glass all over the ground. So it's not as easy unless I go out to the beach. But I've heard that there are things to be said about walking in grass, walking on the ground, walking in sand. So this could be, depending on the environment, let's say, it, it could be something folks even do as we're sitting having this conversation now. It could be a matter of just moving your attention to whatever surface is supporting you at this point, whether it's the chair, the floor, whether it is the natural terrain outside. It's funny, I just got back from this five-day backpacking trip in Yosemite, and I was barefoot the whole time. What? And Yeah, uh, apparently I made it. That's <laughs> been wild. About 14 years worth of practice on barefoot running, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, it was funny. One of the rangers came by our, our site the one night and he's like, yeah, you're a legend. You made it into campfire stories down the trail a bit. They're talking about this barefoot guy. And so it doesn't need to be as dramatic as you do a barefoot backpacking trip. Certainly could be, but you want a little acclimation time. But uh, I would think maybe two things come to mind. So you've got this availability of just directing your awareness downward to that surface. And I find for a lot of people, it can make a huge difference just to practice something as simple as a little bit of floor sitting each day. For instance, I've got this low desk set up. I'm in a squat position right now. But if someone is just watching Netflix, listening to a podcast, reading a book, checking emails, they could do all those things just while sitting on the floor. And their bodies are going to naturally start to shift around position to position. It's not entirely comfortable at the outset. But each of those little shifts is going to give their body a very different experience of support, a different configuration where they could find that base of support. And what I find for a lot of people is that when they develop more proficiency in supporting themselves in these various different positions, they get a kind of psychological flexibility too. Like they're actually able to, again, going back to the movement as metaphor idea, they're able to stand up for themselves in a different way. Or they're able to find a sense of alignment and centeredness within themselves because they have more flexible means of engaging with the literal world around them. I love it. You just reminded me of something many years ago. My husband does a lot of Tai Chi and Qigong. And mm. honey, before any important meeting you do, stretch. Because if you have a flexible body, you'll have a more flexible mind for the meeting. And that always stuck with me. Oh, yeah. The literal changes in our perception available just from tiny little movements in the body, it's it never fails to amaze me. So question, I'm just, this is from a personal curiosity standpoint. Since I was a little girl, I had this thing, I used to get in trouble when I was in first grade. I would have my feet up on the desk and I notice it's funny, I'm sitting here and I have my desk set up and I actually prefer to have my feet up. Now, again, it's funny because it ties into what you were just saying about put your feet on the ground, feel it. 
What would be a psychological reason for that? For example, from like childhood, six years old, to now being a 42-year-old woman, why would I want to keep my feet up all the time? What could that be related to? We might even just run an experiment. If you've got your feet up now, you might take a couple of moments and check in with yourself and think, how am I now? What's it like to be me right now? Okay. And then if you take a couple of moments with your feet on the floor, down away from the chair, you might just notice what's different in the way that I experience myself in this position relative to that position. And it might not be anything too dramatic. It might just be a little more comfortable that way. And then we can start to tease out, like, what's more comfortable like for you? What is it that's more comfortable about that? And maybe that's a couple of times moving back and drawing the feet up and all the time setting the feet down. But gradually we can start to tease apart, what's the difference in the experience you have of a position like this and a, a position like that? I wonder, yeah. what do you notice there? It's, for me, it doesn't feel as liberating. Like, I less. It's like, it goes back to kind of feeling like I want to do what I want. So like having my feet up feels like it's a thing you're not supposed to do. It almost is like the thing for when you're a kid, you can't do that. Because you're a, if you're a six-year-old kicking your feet up on the desk, you're not supposed to do that. And so there's almost this rebellious nature of, ha-ha, <laughs> you don't know, but my feet are up right now. Okay. All right. So there's something that's a little liberatory about that. There's something a little rebellious about that. Yes. So then I get a little curious and I think, okay, we've got maybe liberatory and rebellious as these adjectives on one side. What's the adjective you associate with having the feet down in that position? Constricted and confined. Constricted and confined. Okay. I've never told anybody this, by the way. <laughs> we are airing my dirty laundry. What a privilege. <laughs> I love it. Man, what a gift. But so here, it seems like there's this interesting construct that's made itself evident through this little body practice. There's this basic dichotomy, let's say, between, call it liberatory or rebellious and constricted and confined. We might start to wonder, what do those pairings of adjectives then mean for how you view other situations in the world too? Clearly, there's preference. Like, I don't want to be constricted and confined. I want to be liberated. I want to be rebellious. I want to do my thing. And so we could start to look, is that a pattern? I can't imagine. Is that a pattern that shows up elsewhere? I'm, sure, in I'm sure. This is the first time that's ever shown up, she says. <laughs> yeah, It's the entrepreneurial move, though. We want to do our own thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. And now I can see another exercise I'm going to do. I do this exercise called Psych K, where I put myself in a position to reprogram beliefs, which is what I was just doing about the one I'm afraid of people. Until hmm. Had this conversation, Chandler, I didn't even realize that I have a limiting belief around. I wonder if I were to do it right now, I feel constricted. So there's something about feeling constricted in general and wanting to rebel against that, as opposed to maybe just doing, if I were to test myself on it, I feel open. I just notice right there that there's some sort of old story. And that's what I love about this work in consciousness is we can be humans five years, 20 years, 45 years, however old we might be. And yet we don't realize that conscious Jen and conscious Chandler are not necessarily running the show. There are all of these subconscious patterns, as Bruce Lipton talks about often in the biology of belief, about how our beliefs are actually running the show, not the person that we think we are. Oh, yeah. These things, they are old, they are entrenched, and they stick with us in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. So it sounds like what you're really an expert at, Chandler, is 
helping to distinguish what are the patterns and then helping first by distinguishing and then secondarily by maybe working with the somatic aspect of it to release and create new patterns, right? Yeah. And I find I really tripped myself up trying to understand some of the psychological side of things from the purely mental side. And for me, at least, it was a big help having the movement practice or postural awareness as a way to really concretize these things. It's unmistakable the kind of comfort you experience in your body with your feet up relative to the comfort or the discomfort you experience with your feet down. And for me, at least, similar thing. It's like, I know for a fact when I am physically comfortable and I know for a fact when I'm uncomfortable. And so maybe it's my own uh, growth edge there trying to get more into the abstract side. But having the basic body anchor there really helps me set in stone, oh, this is good for me. And this does not seem so good for me. I love that. I was just actually making a note to myself, could I be comfortable with the uncomfortable? And that's a question I invite us all to ask ourselves. What would it take for us to be comfortable with the uncomfortable? Because as many thought leaders, as many spiritual texts have taught us, science shows us, it's in those moments where we push through, where we push through that last little bit. In fact, I was listening to a dear friend, David Guillaume, who's one of my teachers, doing a class on prosperity a couple of weeks ago. And he said, from an entrepreneurial standpoint and achieving anything you want in life, that most of us will quit at 95%. We will push ourselves to that point, but we will leave that last 5% undone. And yet it's in that last 5%, that last bit of uncomfortability that, oh, but I don't want to, or it's too tough. That's where the magic and the miracles come from. Yeah, that's interesting. And I start to wonder then the manner in which we encounter that last 5%. And what I mean is I think a lot of people are, they're fairly conditioned toward an attitude of toil, like compulsion and obligation, and they'll push themselves through the last 5%, which is it's just, it's not a fun way to do it. It's an ugly way to be with ourselves. But then I wonder about the idea of being pulled through the last 5%. Mm. And so rather than coerce myself into doing that out of a sense of obligation, I should be such and such. Could I, could I create a more beautiful vision, something more encompassing for myself that might draw me through that difficult end range? I don't know. I find for myself, the old habits, the things I've been conditioned to do, they lead me to push at times. And whenever I sense that like teeth gritting, straining kind of attitude, take a moment and just pause because I could always fall back on that. I know how to push myself. But is there a more elegant, more beautiful approach to this available to me that might leave me, that might leave me better than it found me? where I might actually like myself more for the effort at that point, rather than just punish punitive kind of attitude toward myself. So beautiful. And this directly takes us back full circle to how we began the conversation about your new endeavor, The Joy Machine. What does Mm. joy have to do with all of this, Chandler? Oh my God, what does it have to do with that? I think that's like the cleanest burning fuel available to us in terms of our motivation. It seems to me that When we're connected to our desires in a deeply embodied way, without the residue, without the grime of shame, 
what we should be doing, how we ought to comport ourselves with other people. When we're connected to that desirousness within ourselves and fully aligned in the pursuit of what we want, there's something really beautiful about that. And the experience of that seems to me to be an experience of deep joy. A lot of people have a kind of hesitation about that when they say, oh, don't we need to be confined, constrained? Don't we need a little bit of shame or guilt? We've got to play nicely with others. And that's a very deep-seated anxiety for people. But what's often the case and what a lot of really brilliant folks in psychoanalytic thought and psychological work over the years have demonstrated is when we lift that veil of repression, it's not like people become monstrous. It's not like we're this tyrannical thing that we need to keep in check. Generally speaking, when you experience a sense of joy in your life, you don't want anything other than for other people to experience that too. Like you're talking about finding that new vibratory level. When you're coasting at that point, it's like you'll want to make that available for other people as well. I just had the funniest visual. I love what you shared, Chandler. And in my mind's eye, because I, I like to put myself in the mind of the audience and imagine what you're thinking right now. And I saw us playing whack-a-mole with joy. You know that game where there's some joy, let's drive it down. Nope, it's going to catch on. You've got to whack that joy down. Because yeah. there is a question, is it that we're afraid of joy? Is it that we want other people to have joy? Or is having joy something that is so extraordinary? And so outside the realm of what we consider to be safe, just like I was sharing earlier, like what feels safe, that if we were bullied as children or this happened, then joy might feel so out of the box. It's whack that mole. That's just what I saw in my mind's eye. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. To be open and unabashedly enjoying yourself in life. Yeah. People think, oh, it's unrealistic. Or I was working with a client yesterday who had the idea that if she were to be joyful, if she weren't burdened by this kind of depressive sadness, this heaviness, she would lose her edge. She would have no motivation for work at that point. And that's a pernicious idea that I find a lot of people experience too. If I were to be joyful, if I were to be just really deeply satisfied with my life, would I have any motivation whatsoever to, to keep working? Until we cross that chasm and actually experience it, it's hard to believe that we could be more easily motivated for work. We could actually have a cleaner burning fuel for ourselves coming from that place of joy rather than that place of compulsion. And so for a lot of people, just as you mentioned, yeah, they experience this positive feeling and they just, they squash it as quickly as they can. And it's a tragic situation that way, but I think each of us is familiar with it in our own way. What I'm really present to and aware of with what you just shared, Chandler, is that we have it that if I feel that happy, then I don't want to lose that. So I'm just going to squash it before it gets too good because then I couldn't stand it. And yet it's like we often think to ourselves, I won't survive it if. Like for me, I had this story of sleep. I won't survive it if I don't get eight hours. And yesterday I had 12 hours of back-to-back -back meetings beginning at 8 a.m. with Asia and going straight through the day. And that night, the night before, I was up from 1 to 5 a.m. And you know that, like, where you're like, I must fall asleep. I don't want to have all of these meetings. You know what? I'm here. I survived it. The meetings all went fine. The world did not come crumbling down. And yet we have this reoccurring story that I won't survive it. So that's a beautiful invitation for us all to look at how much 
joy are we willing to have? How good are we willing to have it? And in fact, I don't think I've shared this story on the podcast, and it's funny, I'll tie it in because it ties into where we met at Baby Backwater. I had this lid, my friend uh, Jocelyn Herman Saccio, who's been on the show before, shares a story about how to train fleas. And how you train Hmm. a flea is that you actually put it in a mason jar, and then you put a lid on it. And fleas, I don't know if you know this, can jump thousands and thousands of times their height. Yet all it takes is one time for the flea to jump and hit its little flea head against the top of the mason jar, and it will never jump that high again, ever. I had this breakthrough in my jar of happiness and joy when we were at Baby Bathwater. It was the first night, and I was risk mitigating. Here's lots, hundreds of new people I've never been around before. I like to get my eight hours sleep. And the music starts playing at midnight, and I am normally in bed by 10. And the music was just magical and magnificent. So I'm dancing and having fun. And I don't know if you remember this, Chandler, but the first night was the night where there were rain clouds in the distance, around 1, 1.30 a.m., rain clouds and thunder and lightning. And I look at my friend who's with me, Maya, and I'm like, oh, Maya, risk mitigation, risk mitigation. It's going to start raining. We have to walk far. And so joy <laughs> was like right there. I was like hitting against the lid of joy and happiness and pleasure. And Maya looks at me and she's, what, are you going to melt? And I was like, yes, I am going to melt. She's no. And she looks at me. She's like, are you going to survive it, Jen, if you get wet? And I'm like, no, I'm not going to survive it. (laughs) And thank God she just held the space for me. And she said, Jen, what if you just stayed with the uncomfortability of not knowing and just being with it? Could you handle that? And I'll go with you. You just have to give me the word. Just stay an extra five minutes or so and I'll go with you. Just stay with it. And Chandler, that wound up being one of the best moments of my life. So I stayed, and a few minutes later, it does start raining. And the rain is coming down. It's 1.45 in the morning. The music's playing. This is not normal Jen. This is like Jen from another planet. And the music and the rain and everything and magic. And then somebody I've never met, this young woman, comes up next to me, and she has a burger. And I love, like, I love French fries burgers are my jam. And she has a burger. Would you like some of my burger? I've never met this woman. And so I wind up sharing a burger while dancing in the rain with this person I've never met. And it wound up being the lid right off my joy jar. So I just Mm. thought that was a beautiful metaphor to share. We all have these lids. And what would happen if we stopped trying to whack down that pleasure, whack down that joy? And what if we just let the unadulterated joy and pleasure overflow? Oh, I love it. Yeah. I'm just thinking back to the late night burgers on the island there. They are, they're a joyful experience. Yeah. I'm not even a big meat eater. Like I can go months without eating meat, but like at 2 a.m., it just doesn't get any better than that. So Chandler, tell us, where can people connect with you? You've shared so much beautiful wisdom. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you. And thank you for joining us today. Where can people find out more about the work you do? Yeah, I think the easiest place to go for folks would be bodymindclass.com. I try and keep a revolving list of free resources there. ChandlerStevens.com is my main hub as well. Active on LinkedIn, Facebook, these sorts of places too. Happy to share those links. But uh, all that to say, I really had a good time with this. I appreciate you taking aside the time. And it's been a pleasure getting to know you in this new space you find yourself in too. Yes. Thank you, Chandler. Thank you for just being here and being available. Literally, it's It was such a pleasure. I am a different person than I was 35 minutes ago when I came into this interview. And I just really 
acknowledge the beautiful space that you hold. I can see why you are so gifted and talented at what you do. It's your listening is beautiful and your soul and spirit are beautiful too. So thank you for sharing that with us today. Welcome. Yeah, it feels really good to hear. I appreciate that. And thank you to each of you tuning in out there. And I invite you to ask yourself, where in my life do I have a lid this week? Where in my life could I potentially stand to have a little more joy, a little more pleasure, a little more fun, and see if you could blow the lid right off of your joy jar this week? Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of Regarding Consciousness with Jennifer K. Hill. We would love it if you would take a moment and write a review for us or rate us on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And if you'd like to stay in touch and find out about upcoming events with some of the amazing guests we've had on the show, like Deepak Chopra and other world thought leaders, feel free to join my email list at metabizics, M-E-T-A-B-I-Z-I-C-S dot com. Again, that's metabizics.com. And you can go ahead and join our email list there. Thanks so much. And we look forward to having you join us next week.